Our gospel lesson this morning is come, we, it comes to us from the gospel according to Luke, the 11th chapter, the 1st through 13th verses. Hear now the word of God. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give you a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Think for a minute about how you learn to pray. It's funny those things that lodge into your memory. And one of those things that when I think about how I learn to pray always lodges in my memory is my grandmother's dinner table. It's the custom in a lot of houses, including every house I went to that wasn't my grandmother's, for one of the children to say the blessing. And we do that in our house now still. Our two teenagers take turns saying the blessing, except for Christmas and Thanksgiving, I guess, when they bring in the ringer to say the blessing. But at my grandmother's house, grandmother always prayed before the meal. Never one of the children. The only other people that ever prayed in her house were my father or my uncle that I heard anyway. And she always said this blessing, Lord, we thank you for these and all other blessings. For Christ's sake, amen. So much so that I didn't have to look it up. I heard it so many times, it's just in my head. Lord, we thank you for these and all other blessings. For Christ's sake, amen. And I never thought about why she said those words and why it wasn't the words that my father said or the words that my brother and I said when we took turns saying the blessing. That's just what grandmother said. And then many, many years after I heard that blessing for the first time, after a couple of decades of hearing that blessing said at my grandmother's table, I went into Ellen's house and met her family for the first time. And her father said the blessing. And he said, Lord, we thank you for these and all other blessings. But he added, and forgive us our many sins, for Christ's sake, amen. Not to say that Ellen's family's home was more sinful than my grandmother's. It was just an addition that, for some reason or another, her family put into the blessing. And I I said, huh, 
how is it that the Burrises and the Murph house have the same blessing? And so I thought about it, and then I realized that when my uncle was at my grandmother's house, he said the same blessing that grandmother said. And I said, well, he probably just heard his parents say it, so he said it. And so I asked Ellen's dad where, he, where that blessing came from. And he said, well, my mother said it. His father died when he was a very small child, so he didn't remember what his father said. But my mother prayed he would say before the meals, and that's what she would say. And I said, well, where do you think she got it from? Well, he said, I know that's what my grandfather said, so I imagine that's where she got it from. I want to know, where, where did Grandfather Kiesler get it from? He said, I don't know. So I asked my grandmother, and I said, where did that blessing come from that you say before the meals? You said the same thing my whole life. Where did it come from? And she said, well, that's what Daddy said before the blessing. I'm like, Grandmother, we're not getting anywhere with this. I've only got it back to great-grandparents, and we can't get it any further other than to say it's traditional. I wonder, where did it come from? How did these two families, both from South Carolina, but not the same parts of South Carolina, these two, this is the, Ellen and I have one branch of our family that kind of overlaps geographically, and this wasn't it. These were the other two branches where people didn't know each other, had not come into contact with one another, yet they said the same blessing. There's got to be a common source somewhere. There's got to be somewhere, somebody said these, these words to bless the food for the first time. And somewhere, these two very different families in terms of geography and religious background and culturally, these two families nevertheless acquired the same blessing. And I wonder, what was the common source? And I know there had to be one. But at some point, someone learned these words and prayed them over and over again until maybe even unintentionally the people around them learned these words and it became the prayer we used to bless our food. When I think about it, I learned to pray because someone taught me to pray. When I think about it, after I started going through this blessing mystery with Ellen's family and mine, I, I began to realize when I say the blessing for myself, I pretty much say the same words my dad says, and it's because I heard him pray them. When I think of those, we think of, and maybe the lessons you learned as children continue to inform how you pray now. Maybe your children, or you who are children, pray in a way that sounds like the grown-ups around you. In this morning's scripture reading, we see a time where the disciples of Jesus came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. How should we pray? And Jesus gives them these words that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. Now, the version we just said and the version used in most worship dates back to the earliest days of the church, but is rooted in Matthew's telling of Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer. You'll find that in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Now think that through 2,000 years of Christian history, people have been praying these words in their own language, probably. But these same words of Jesus, that when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he gave them these words, and we continue to use these words. Friends, we have the Lord's Prayer in the form we pray it in, more or less, from the 4th century. That's written in the 4th century. But we, 
know that when it was written down and the earliest place we can find it written is from the 4th century, we know what was being written down even then was something that was already well-established practice in the church's worship. These words are powerful. Back in 2008, Ellen and I were blessed to be part of a trip that our conference took, and we were in Bethlehem. The one outside of Jerusalem, not the one in Pennsylvania. We were in Bethlehem. And one thing I learned there is that the bus always stopped in front of a store. And the bus stopped in front of a store. But before we went into the store, the man who owned the store got on the bus to talk to us. And, you know, one of the things he told us at first was what kind of discount he was going to give us for being part of this tour group. And, you know, two for one and five for seven, those kind of things. And but after he went through his sales speech, he said something that was not part of his sales speech. And he he reminded us, as we had already been reminded by our bishop and our tour guide, both that one of the most important ways that we can support Christians in that part of the country is economically by buying from them. And so and before we went into the store, though. The man told us a little bit of his faith background. He was a Syrian Orthodox Christian, Syriac usually called Orthodox Christian, which is a minority Christian group in the Middle East, but is ancient. So ancient that they worship in Aramaic. Aramaic was the everyday language that Jesus and the disciples spoke. If you ever had to read Beowulf in Old English, the Hebrew of the Old Testament is like the Old English of Beowulf. And the language we speak would be more like the relationship between Hebrew, ancient Hebrew and Aramaic. So the same language that had continued to change and evolve through the years. But the Syriac Orthodox Church worships in Aramaic. Just as for a period of time, Latin became sort of the locked-in language of Christian worship in the West. Aramaic, but these group of Christians, continues to be the language they worship in because it's the language they started worshiping in. What makes it more noteworthy for me is it's the language Jesus spoke. Now, Jesus would have probably known Latin. He may have had a smattering of Greek enough to do business. But the everyday language of Jesus and his disciples, the language they spoke in their homes with their families would have been Aramaic. And here is a church that worships in the language of Jesus. And there in front of us, over the loudspeaker on the bus... He crossed himself and he prayed the Lord's Prayer. And it struck me in that moment, I was hearing the Lord's Prayer as the disciples would have heard it. With the tone, with the inflection, with the vocabulary. And it makes me come to this prayer in a new way, knowing that while the translations of the words might change, these words are, go all the way back to Jesus. You know, the words we say in English date to 1541 when the English-speaking world started translating things from Latin to English. So consider the words when we use the traditional words of the Lord's Prayer. We're saying something that English-speaking Christians have been saying more or less unchanged for 500 years. Now, you, if you were from different religious traditions, you know that some people have debt, debt, debts and debtors instead of trespasses. Maybe some say, Our Father, which art in heaven instead of who art in heaven. Minor changes. 
Nevertheless, for 500 years, except for those minor differences, Christians have been praying these words in the same way. And we can know that for 1,500 years before that, Christians were praying the same prayer in their own languages. Interestingly, just in, I like people to, to learn here and there. So the doxology, as it's called, that we say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, that you didn't find, for example, in Luke's uh, gospel there, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is, is not, those words aren't found in the Bible itself, but were a 17th century uh, addition that came into English-speaking worship as a way to uh, give a final word of praise and worship to God at the end of the prayer. But it strikes me, when Jesus', when Jesus disciples say, teach us to pray, he gives them these words, and we've continued to use those words. If we look at it, if we look at these words that Jesus gives his disciples, the first word he gives to them is Father, our, our Father. Now, I know and I think it's important to recognize up front that Father might not be a comfortable word for everyone. That sometimes the notion of your, the earthly father that you may have had was not a positive th- image, a positive connotation. But what Jesus means here by calling God Father is he's, he's giving the idea of a loving, reciprocal relationship. A parent whose faithful love and care for us is never-ending and is unconditional and loves no matter what. A relationship that we, though we often fall short, try to return with our own love and affection. A perfect parental love that may be different from our experience of love, but it is perfect and pure and that we are compelled to try in our own way to offer back. Our Father, holy is your name. Holy is your name. A statement of love and adoration. A statement of praise and worship. Give us each day our daily bread. I think it's interesting Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. Notice he doesn't teach us to pray this day for a 16-ounce ribeye cooked medium rare. He doesn't teach us to pray that we would win the lottery or otherwise find a life full of luxury. We pray for what we need. And forgive us our sins. And we're all have sin in our lives. All of us have the, that inborn propensity to mess things up. And because we have that, despite our best efforts to do otherwise, we need to ask God's forgiveness. And then he says, for we forgive, for we ourselves forgive everyone. And this is the clause in the Lord's Prayer that could be a sermon in and of itself, even a sermon series in and of itself. But Jesus tells us the measure by which we receive forgiveness is the degree to which we give forgiveness to others. But forgiveness doesn't mean letting someone get away with wrongdoing. But it can mean a, a fresh start in a relationship. Or, and it can mean letting go of the power another person's actions might have over us. So Jesus gives us this prayer. And then he gives a parable to help Help us understand the prayer to help us unpack it. 
If we consider what Jesus is saying in these words, in the parable that comes after the words of the Lord's Prayer, he gives us the example of a man who in the middle of the night runs to his friend's house in need of bread for company that's unexpectedly shown up. And it's, it's, it's almost funny if you think about this parable. This is like sitcom material here. You run to the neighbor's house, you knock on the door, I need food, somebody just showed up. And you have your neighbor going, do you know what time it is? Go away. But the man keeps knocking. And the neighbor keeps saying, it's still the middle of the night. Still go away. And Jesus gives us the example of basically saying, you know, if you keep knocking, he's eventually going to give you the food you ask for. Because he's going to want to go to sleep. And he's going to realize that you don't stop knocking on the door until you get what you want. He's talking about persistence. And then he goes on to use the example of if your child asked you for fish, would you give him a snake? Would you give him a scorpion? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. And he said, you who have that natural inborn human propensity to mess things up, if you know better than to give your child a snake or a scorpion when he needs a fish or an egg, How much more would God in heaven care for you and give you what you need? He reminds us in so doing that God wants what's best for us. And this prayer, our prayer life reflects that. What prayer does for us in the most basic sense is make us present to the God who offers to change us. In the most basic sense, I think prayer is communication with God. It's conversation with God. I bet you know people. And if you're like me, maybe sometimes you have to watch that you're not one of those people who doesn't really have conversations but has two-person monologues. Have you ever known the person that just talks and talks and talks and you never feel like you get a chance to say anything? How often is our prayer time like that? Prayer is conversation with God, making ourselves present to God but in absolutely talking to God, but also listening and waiting for God's guidance. I've never heard God in an auditory way. I've never heard Him with my ears, but I've nevertheless felt the nudging and the leading of the Holy Spirit as a result of prayer. Prayer can be asking for guidance. It can simply be adoration, enjoying being in the presence of God. It can be thanksgiving. It can be confession. It can be intercession as we pray for others. But what prayer is not is trying to change God's mind or giving God our wish list as if he's Santa Claus in the sky. Prayer doesn't change God, but prayer can change us. Prayer is not self-help, but it's a key to dealing with difficult times in life so that when the storms of life do come, we're able to weather them. Methodist minister named James Moore tells the story of how he was once able to go to the Colonial in Fort Worth. It's a PGA tournament, and Tiger Woods was in this tournament. I know Tiger Woods might not be the best moral example for any of us to follow in everything he's done, but you have to acknowledge he's a great golfer. And Tiger Woods was playing this, and and he was following Tiger as he was playing in this tournament. He was awed by the throngs of people that followed Tiger from hole to hole as he went through the practice rounds. But even more, 
He was intrigued by Tiger's activities before and after the round was over. Before his round, he went to the practice range, and all he hit was his five iron. Five iron, five iron, five iron. He practiced high arching shots. Five iron, five iron, five iron. He practiced low driving shots. Five iron, five iron, five iron. He must have hit a hundred shots, all with his five iron. And then he played his round. And at dusk, he returned to the practice tee, and again, all he hit over and over was five iron, five iron, five iron. Again, the next day on the practice tee, five iron, five iron, five iron, round after round, back to the practice tee, five iron over and over and over again. Dr. Moore wondered at this odd sort of practice method, but it became clear to him on the last day. It was Sunday. Tiger was charging ahead for the lead on the back nine. He was 190 from the pin. And guess what he pulled out? His five iron. He used his five iron and put the ball within three feet of the cup. And it became perfectly clear why he hit his five iron over and over and over again. It was all about practice. Practice for a particular shot so that when the need came, he would know what to do. Our prayer lives are the same sometimes. It might seem like the same thing day in, day out, like a five iron over and over and over again. And we might become arrogant and think we've mastered this particular thing and we don't need to practice as much and our practice becomes less and less. But when we find ourselves in a pressure situation, we need to pray. And if we've kept up the practice of prayer, we'll know just what to do. So the call then is to pray, to pray when we rise, to pray when we sit, to pray before our meals, to pray when we're walking along the road, to pray when we brush our teeth, to pray when we sit down, to pray always in all places, at all times, to pray. And here Jesus gives us a model of prayer. It's a prayer to pray when you don't know what else to pray. If you don't know what other words, you can always pray these words. The words of the Lord's Prayer. It can serve as a model for other prayer. So that if you use the pattern that the Lord's Prayer gives us to pattern new prayers on. How to pray is less important than that we pray. I think prayer is the foundation of a life of faith. There was a point in my life where I decided I needed to go deeper with prayer that I'd just kind of been mumbling the same words over and over again. And I, I needed to, to go deeper and, and learn more. And so I did what ministers are often prone to do. We go get a bunch of books and we start reading and we start trying to figure out how to pray better. And so I read the Desert Fathers, and I read Irish monks, and I read contemporary writers, and I read people I'd heard of in seminary but didn't read as much as I should have. I've read all kinds of people who'd written all kinds of things about prayer until I read, uh, came to one of my favorite Christian writers, Thomas Merton, who told me, even though he's been dead longer than I've been alive, but he told me through the pages of one of his books quit praying and just quit reading about praying and just go pray. If you would just pray instead of reading about praying and trying to figure out how to pray better, you'd get better at it. And I said, oh, well, that makes sense. 
Instead of trying to figure out how to have a deeper prayer life, I was missing the most important piece to having a deeper prayer life, which is to pray. Our prayer deepens with repetition. And there are countless ways to pray. And the most important thing for you to know now is not just how, but just do. Just pray. And the Lord's Prayer serves us as a model for how to pray if we don't have the words, but just pray. Even if it's praying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. Even if it's just saying the name of Jesus over and over and over again. Regardless of the words we use or whether we kneel or stand or sit, just pray. And I found the only surefire way to make room for prayer in my life is to schedule it. I literally have my times of prayer on my calendar on my phone. And I suggest you do that if you're the kind of person whose phone governs their lives like I may or may not be. But schedule it. Find the times that you pray and stick to it. Did you know if you do the same thing at the same time every day for two weeks, it does something in your brain? I don't know what because I really don't understand how the brain works. But it does something in your brain that creates a pattern that it then becomes routine. And so that you begin to subconsciously expect to do that thing. Regardless of what it is, it forms a habit that you are naturally going to continue to doing. So if you pray at the same time of day, every day, for two weeks, you will be developing a new pattern of prayer. You'll be developing a pattern of prayer that serves as a foundation for so many other things, not just in your life of faith, but the everyday parts of your life that you aren't even aware of God's presence. It works to make you, even in your subconscious mind, more available to the God who's always with you. It's the most foundational thing we can do to open us to God's presence is to create space in our lives for Him. So I would say to you, pray. And let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, in your goodness you pour out on your people all that we need and you satisfy those who persist in prayer. Make us bold in asking, thankful in receiving, tireless in seeking and joyful in finding that we may always proclaim your coming kingdom and do all we can do to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.